turn, if you will, to Psalm 46. I want to speak this morning on uh, four things, four things we can learn from tragedies, four things. I think a big issue comes up when things like this happen. Is God in charge? Did Mother Nature determine these events, or did God, and does God, orchestrate everything? And so there is an issue in theology that says, is, if God is all good, is he all-powerful? And this is the famous atheistic rebuttal of theism or Christianity, that God is either all good and not powerful, as Rabbi Kushner said in his book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He said, God is good, but at times uh, he's not powerful. He's not able to even control what happens. And so uh, he's just, he's, he's a nice God, that just isn't in charge. The other view would be uh, he's all-powerful, but he's not all-good. Because if he's all-good, how can he allow bad? How can he permit evil? So they figure they have a great conundrum. But God is sovereign, and that means uh, he's in charge of everything. And he said in Ephesians he made a plan a purpose, and in that, every end, every means, uh, every event, the fall of man, nothing has ever caught God off guard. And uh, so you could say this, I'd rather erase God and just put it in the realm of chance. Everything is by chance. So if that gives you comfort, uh, Go to Las Vegas and start throwing the dice. You're living in a chance world. If you're a believer, even when there's bad, it's amazing how we find comfort in God to know there is a God there that nothing has caught him off guard. And it's comforting, even though we can't explain the pain. But the natural thing is, uh, these people are either bad and deserve to have their house burned or luck and nature just ganged up. Look at Psalms 46, and then we're going to go into four scriptures that will move through to say four things we can learn. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and behold the works of the Lord, 
how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So no matter what is going on, he controls nations, he controls chariots, he controls the earth, he controls wind, wave, sea, fire, earthquakes, all of this. And then you read in Matthew 24 that as the end of time comes and we face the coming of the Lord, the earth will be like a woman in travail and there'll be multiple earthquakes, natural tragedies. God, it's just like the earth is heaving up all the sin that's gone on it and it's groaning, groaning for a day when God will redeem even the earth and free it from the curse. In the meantime, what can we learn? What can we learn? And I want to have you turn four different places in the Bible. I gave you an outline here. Let's begin with Luke 13. Luke 13, a mysterious passage that uh, <clears throat> for years I, I was bothered by it. Look at it. Luke 13 There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So he slaughtered people, and he took their blood, their human blood, and mixed it with the mortar. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell, a natural disaster. The first one's an evil man. And our man in Las Vegas that kills 58 people, that we know where that came from. We got a wicked man with a wicked scheme. But now when the tower caves in, there's no moral culprit. There's nobody morally responsible for the tower caving in. We'd call that a natural disaster. And it says, of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What in the world are you telling us, Lord? Well, he's taking on a very common explanation for problems. It was the Jewish way of explaining most problems, like Job's comforters. If you're having a bad time, it's because God is tracking you down for your sins. You've been caught, and God is judging you. And Jesus refuted this thinking. He did it in John 9 when they said, Who sinned, this boy's parents or him? He was born blind. Somebody's done something wrong. It doesn't just happen that way. 
There's got to be somebody being wrong. Jesus said, no, no. You can't trace it to sin in either case. But then he says, <clears throat> instead of us trying to figure out how bad, why did they get it, and we, why did their house burn and yours didn't burn? And in the midst of that, he's saying, no, no, don't be judging the why of tragedy. Don't be impugning anything <clears throat> wrong with these people. We have believers that lost their home. We know people that lost their home. I talked to uh, uh, Pastor Chris Bauer. Forty-one families connected with their church lost their home. That's quite a few. Forty-one families in that church alone lost their home. Just think in this congregation, if we had 41 families now out of a house to live in, 41, that, that's quite, besides the 3,000 others that lost their place. So what does Jesus do? Jesus uses this and says, first of all, tragedy is indiscriminate. It can happen to anybody, earthquakes, hurricanes, whatever indiscriminate. But what we need to know is he says all men are facing a catastrophic judgment, and it is their house will be set on fire, their soul will be on fire, for every man and woman faces eternal judgment, and the only escape is if they repent and that they flee to Christ. So instead of us judging who's good, evil, who deserves, who doesn't deserve, he said, I'm telling you, let these tragedies and disasters ask yourself, and I'm, am I prepared to face God? And I, am I prepared to face like tragedy? Would I know God had I burned up in my house last night? Would I be prepared to face God? And fire insurance won't do it. There's only one way to be ultimately prepared to meet God, whether you're killed on an, a road, in a river, no matter, a massacre. We, everyone, it's dangerous to be alive. It's very dangerous. It's more dangerous to be unprepared to die. Have you ever repented of your sins? Have you ever fled to the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's what he's saying. In these natural disasters, in these terrible offenses like of a pilot, the big issue is, am I prepared to meet God? And I do that by repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we ought to know. Are were these people saved that were killed in Las Vegas? Were they prepared to meet God? Are you prepared to meet God? If it should happen to you, would you be ready? Would you be prepared to meet God? Then let's go to the second thing. Let's go to chapter 12, another story Jesus tells. Chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd uh, puts out a question to Jesus. 
hey, me and my brother are squabbling over the inheritance. We need an arbiter. We need a lawyer, as it were. And he asked Jesus to settle the dispute over the will. And he said, hey, take care, verse 15, and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's quite a statement. Be on your alert. He told them, I'm not in the business of settling inheritance squabbles. That's not why I came. But let me warn you about this. Covetousness, greed, the lust for more is a disease you must be aware of. Jesus said, Brother Paul said a verse that I don't think we get, we even understand. What did he mean when he said, at the root of all evil is the love of money? Did God ever say that? 1 Timothy 6.10, he did. If you love money, it's the root of all the other sins you do. If you've got money, you can buy women. You can buy drugs. You can buy anything. You can buy whatever. And what money represents is human reliance. If I have money, I've got it covered. If I've got money, I've got security. If I've got money, I've got power. If I've got money, I've got prestige. And God's Word says the love of that kind of reliance and prestige is the root of all the other sins you commit. It's a reliance on stuff other than a reliance on God. And God said it's an insult. It's idolatry. That's why he says covetousness, Colossians 3, 5, equals idolatry. You've got another idol in your heart that you're relying on. It's the love of money, human resources. That's all I need. He said it's the root of all the other evils. And so then he goes on. He tells a story. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So far, so good. This guy's industrious. He's prosperous. And I will say to my soul, now right here is where the folly is, the, the self-talk. That goes on. And watch now, I, my, the internal attitude and talking. I will say to my soul, soul, you've got it made. You've got enough money laid up in your 401, you know, 401k. You, you've, got it, you've got it made. You've got enough money for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Sound like an American. But God said to him, fool, why is a man a fool that is this prosperous? I mean, this is a business whiz. This guy's having to build more barns because he knows how to farm so well that everything is increasing, increasing, increasing. He is booming. He is booming. And if you were in that category, we'd say, there's one of the successful men in our church. How would you say that? His money is exponentially expanding. He has to be great. 
because we give status to people who know how to make money. It's not easy to do. So that great achievement. But watch what in all this self-talk. Fool. God interrupts his self-talk. You fool. This night, maybe last Sunday night in Santa Rosa, 40 have died so far. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Who gets the stuff? So is it with the person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You don't know God. You've never repented. Uh, you don't have time for God. You're too busy making money. You're too busy prospering. If half of us worked as hard at knowing God as we do to make a buck, you'd be amazed at how your spiritual life would be abounding. We know some people, the only thing that gets their attention is put money in front of them. They'll, they'll sacrifice principle. They'll sacrifice morals. They'll work every Sunday. They won't take any time off. Money is the determiner of everything. And here he says, you put all your investments in one area of life that will be lost in the night. And besides that, you will be lost in the night. Too late to repent. Too late to tell me when you come before God, but God, I've got $10 million in the bank. He said, in heaven, you've got nothing. You've never invested in things eternal. All your investments were lost in a fire or in a night in this man's case. I want how many people, I'm going to make a bet with you. Let's make a bet. How many of you bet? You'll be alive tomorrow and guarantee it. Let's go. Make the bet. Well, if you die tonight, will you have repented? And will have you will you have you ever invested any time to know God? Because you're going to meet God. And you can't lie and get away. He's going to say, no, you chase money, you chase sports, you chase pleasure, you chase this, but you had no time, so I have no time for you. And that will be your eternal verdict. You'll never be bothered by me for eternity. Brutal, cruel. I'm giving you time to invest in things that will outlast fires. Knowing God is the most important thing you can do with your life while you're here. Don't spend it all on perishable items. Perishable items. Let's go to James 3. James 3. Third thing I believe we can learn is uh, to walk humbly with God and to think humbly about tomorrow. Uh, how many of you, when you say, tell people you'll be there, say, the Lord willing? Hardly no one. 
We'd say, I'll see you tomorrow. You will? Guarantee me that. Listen to what James says. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I mean, I have to be honest with you. I was reeling from Las Vegas. It was a Sunday night, right? Sunday night is when we got all the news of the massacre. We're reeling from that news, and I'm glued to it. I was glued to, when I was on vacation, I was glued to the TV watching Houston being inundated with all this water, and I, I couldn't get away from the TV set. I, I wanted to see what's the outcome. What's the outcome? Then last Sunday night, a week ago Sunday night, I'm following detail by detail. What, how does this guy get up there with all these guns? How can you pull off a massacre? Bah, 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 bah. And then at 2 in the morning or so, the warning's out. Santa Rosa's on fire. Oh, oh, well, we have fires all the time. They'll get it out. They're still burning. They're still finding dead people. We got 200 missing. And here he says, you can go to bed tonight and say, we're doing this tomorrow. We're doing that. And James says, I'm telling you, you shouldn't think that way. Other words, you probably shouldn't plan or think over 24 hours ahead. Go ahead and buy your plane tickets, but just that we may not be using them. Maybe you can insure them. They might cover you when you go to heaven. But look at it. And he's, been, he's taking on pride in the chapter. And says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Lord, I'm important. No, you're just a mist. You're just passing vapor from the teapot. You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What will my family do without me? Oh, grieve and then spend the insurance money. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Watch. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. God's not against planning. He's against proud planning. He's against independent, self-sufficient planning, like I'm in charge. You really are not. Saved or unsaved, you're not really in charge of tomorrow. You can't determine if a drunk driver is going to kill you today. How could you determine that there's a man on the 30th floor, whatever, at the Mandalay Hotel, and I'm just going to, for a country gig and get killed, and I leave a girlfriend out here that was shot, or my wife, or my daughter? No, no, no. Uh, I, that wasn't in the plan. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. We'll be there tomorrow. We're in charge. 
but large and in charge. Oh, fool, 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 fool. God's already picked the day you're going to die. Did you know that? God picked the day you would be born, and according to Scripture, he's already got it in the calendar, the day and the way you will die. It's already been planned out. And you, you can't change that. You can't change it. I'm hoping I can go while I'm preaching, just go up. I had an aunt. One of my dad's sisters was in church in Locust Grove, Oklahoma, Pentecostal. And in church, she raised her hand, was praising the Lord, and instantly had a heart attack, died right there. I talked to her daughter, Elaine, my cousin. I said, wow, what happened to Aunt Mildred? She said, Jesus did a drive-by. <laughs> he just took her in a moment. He can do a drive-by. All such boasting is he. So whoever knows the right, and the right here is dependent planning, not self-sufficient planning, and doesn't do it, for him it will be sin. So humbly plan your life. Humbly admit, if the Lord's willing, we will. If the Lord, God's will will be the thing that would determine it, and we're totally self-reliant, no cockiness, no boasting, no pride, no, we're in charge. No, get rid of that folly. Get rid of that stupidity. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. God is in charge of everything. Nebuchadnezzar, I run the nations. I make, I'm going to make you go insane for seven years because you think you're in charge. And I'm going to make you eat grass like a cattle and grow out fingernails like an eagle to show you that though you're the greatest monarch of the ancient world, there's somebody greater than you. It's called the God of Israel. It's humbling, but it's what God wants to do to us. Then let's look at Titus, our fourth thing. Titus chapter 3. What we should learn in tragedy. Tragedy is a call for those of us who've been spared to love others and to help others. Look at uh, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And that word for loving kindness is the word philanthropy. Philanthropy. God loves mankind. God God loves people that are never going to be saved. Did you know that? God is good to all men. Gives them seasons. Gives them blessing. Blessing. So he said, this God who loves all mankind tells us in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful Devote, to devote themselves to good works. Devote yourselves to good works. Look at verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help 
cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. God has called us to be a people rich in good works. I think of Clayton wanting to go down to uh, uh, the island and, and bring relief, bring things like food, power bars, things just to keep people alive. That's wonderful. That's good works. We ought to take an offering. We ought to give money. I called these people. They said, don't bring us any water. Don't bring any supplies. We've got all of that. Bring us money. We need money. We can buy the goods cheaper than you can buy them. We can buy the medicine. We need cash. We need cash. What do you think God would have you do? Why don't you do some good works? Do something. He said that our doctrine ought to be adorned with good works. Don't be people that just spout the doctrine, spout Jesus is coming, and spout all the truths, and say, in the meantime, would you clothe a brother? Would you feed a brother? John says the love of God doesn't dwell in us unless we're willing to do that. So it's time to do good works, help our brother and sister churches, and just be involved. Tragedy should call us into action. Did you know hospitals and colleges many times in history were started by believers, leprosariums where no one wanted to handle them? It was Christians often, oftentimes Catholic charities and other groups have gone in where nobody else wanted to go. Rescue missions. Who wants to deal with a derelict that is addicted to alcohol? The whole rescue mission effort just where John and Debbie Anderson work every day trying to rescue the perishing. Is it worth it? I see people in building projects, sports. You know, I know this time of the year we miss certain people because guess what? There's teams playing, and those teams desperately need you in the stadium. On the Lord's Day, I want to read a final passage, Second. Peter, Second Peter, then we close. Second Peter, chapter 3. L listen to what he says. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, now, listen to what he says. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus Christ is going to come back and judge the earth. And he says there will be a cosmic universal fire that will melt and burn up the earth. So you're living in a cosmic dump that's ready to be set on fire. This earth, everything around you, every tree is going to be consumed. Even in the tribulation, islands flee, all of those things. But he said, this is going to happen. It's coming. Cosmic destruction of the known universe as we know it. Now watch what he says, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What, what a statement. Famous apologist Francis Schaeffer one day was walking outside the city of Philadelphia, and in his walk, he happened to come by the Philadelphia city dump that was out there. And he said he looked into the dump, and he could see refrigerators, TVs, and all these uh, different furnishings and things that people were throwing away. And all of a sudden, he thought, you know what? This is the cosmic blaze that is coming. Everything is headed for a garbage heap. Every, all the stuff we fight over, we lust for, we make payments on. I got to have it. I got to have it. And he said, it will all burn up. The only thing on this planet worth going out of your way for is a human being. Not your stuff. Not your animals. People. For they have eternal destinies. They have worth. They have needs. Why don't you get torn free from all the stuff, the stuff? that is choking your life and running your life. I had a father-in-law who had a beautiful yacht, about 42 feet. He kept it all the way up in Stockton to get it out of salt water because he wanted to keep it in top shape. Guess what? He had to spend three days every weekend keeping it clean, keeping it in shape, insuring it, making payments on who owned who. The yacht owned him, and he died, and the yacht cannot help his status with God, for I never knew of him repenting. One night, Howard Hendricks drove up in his neighborhood and his neighbor was standing out in front of his house in his pajamas, and the house was on fire and eventually burned to the ground. And while the house was burning and the firemen were nearly helpless to put it out, his neighbor cried out in anguish, everything I've got was in that house. I've lost everything. Hendrick said, he asked himself, would that have been true of me had that been my house? Would I have lost everything? And he said, thank God, no, because of what he had could not be burned up. He had an eternal in home in heaven, and he knew Jesus Christ, and no fire could get rid of it. I close with a story out of the life of Dwight Dell Moody. Dwight Dell Moody, October 6, 1871. He's preaching in a hall called Farwell Hall in Chicago, Illinois. 
he preaches that night this message. What then shall I do with Jesus Christ, who is called Christ? What should I do with him? And when he came to the close of the message, he said, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And next Sabbath, we will come to Calvary and the cross, and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Following the sermon, Ira Sankey, his famous song leader, sang, Today the Savior calls, for refuge fly, the storm of justice falls, and death is nigh. While he's ending the sermon, the sirens go off. And all of a sudden, he had to flee out the back door because the flames were growing so quick. He fled home to see his wife, Emma, and the children. That night, 14,000 homes burned to the ground in Chicago. That night, his church, Moody Bible Church, that was then the Illinois Street Church, burned to the ground. The YMCA that he'd raised the money to build in Chicago burned to the ground. Farwell Hall, 3,000-seat auditorium, burned to the ground. By the time he got to the house, he grabbed Emma and the children. She grabbed one picture off the wall. They fled. It burned to the ground. The greatest fire that ever swept an American city because the city had been built with pine wood that had all dried out and just dropped a match. It was ready to go up. Twenty-two years later, at the anniversary of the Chicago fire, Moody spoke, and he said these words. I have never seen that congregation since that October 6th night. And I will never meet these people again until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you of one lesson I learned that night, which I have never forgotten, and that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I've asked God many times to forgive me for telling people that night to take a week to think it over. Why not now? When will you repent? You know, I'd be more of an evangelistic preacher if you'd bring more unsaved people. If you don't like to be evangelized, that's your problem. You're not bringing anybody. Most of you may be saved. Do you work at bringing anybody? Are you telling the anybody's in your life, repent? Have you repented? Have you received Christ? Because tragedy can hit any moment. It could hit any one of us, any time. The biggest issue will be, I'm prepared to meet God. I don't need my house to burn to the ground to do that. I've already done it. So I know 
I have one thing, one thing that nothing in all of life can happen bad enough to me for me to lose it. I have Christ. And he has me. And if they burn up my body, he said, fear not him who can destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. Thank God if you'll flee to Christ, you can get permanent life insurance and fire insurance that covers you for eternity. You'll never see the judgment of God. Father, I ask for those who listen today, and you would assume they all know the Lord. Only you know that. But there may be some here not prepared to die. They're not prepared to face the fires of eternity and the judgment of God upon those who refuse to repent. If there's such a person, would they right now say, what is keeping me from Christ? What is keeping me from the security of knowing that should I die, should I not be alive 24 hours from this service, that I will be with God forever, that judgment will not touch me, that I will have repented, that I will have believed. I take you, Christ. I want to believe in you. I want to trust your death for my sins. I want to trust your resurrection for my life. I receive you, Christ. I flee. I fear the judgment of God. I fear being unprepared. Now, now I ask you, come into my heart. Not another day, not another delay. I've not been promised tomorrow. You've given me now. May you help me to believe, help me to receive. Don't let me perish. I want to repent and say I'm sorry for the way I've rejected you. I'm sorry that I've relied on other things besides you. I put money, pleasure, my schedule, my projects, everything's been before you. But I will stand before you, not my projects. And you will ask, did you ever repent and receive my son? You obviously have not, or you would not be before my white throne judgment. Father, save. Only you can. We can preach. We can plead. But only you can save. We pray, do it. Do it today. And I ask you, if you're here, right where you are, pray to receive Christ. Ask him into your heart. Don't, don't risk another day. Don't risk time you're not guaranteed. And, of course, there's always some of us brothers and sisters here. If you make a confession and you need help, you need direction, that's what we're here for. We'll help you. But only you, only you can reach out and say, I repent, I receive Christ. You can do it right there. Do it for the sake of your eternal soul. Do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If God's dealt with your heart, I'm going to wait up front. We'll be glad to talk with you. God bless you. You're dismissed.